If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 12, someone said if Jesus is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. But He is Lord of all. That same Jesus who was crucified at Calvary 2,000 years ago, redeeming His chosen people with His own precious blood, has risen. He is now seated on His sovereign throne of power and glory. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Now our studies in Isaiah have been pointing, pointing us to a very important truth that all of God's preachers know, a truth that all of God's ministers, Sunday school teachers, those who bring devotionals, all of His preachers need to be reminded of, that Jesus Christ and His church is the subject of the Holy Word of God from cover to cover. Those our Lord Jesus is pleased to bring under our ministry cannot be educated into the kingdom of God. We must be born again. That's a miracle of God's grace performed by His sovereign power for the glory of His darling Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Historical accounts, as interesting as they are, and they have their place, is not the instrument that God has chosen to deliver His own elect from the power of darkness. It's the Gospel. That's the chosen instrument that God uses to set us free. The Apostle Paul, and we're getting to this in our studies on Friday night, but in 2 Thessalonians, you don't have to turn there, but verses 13 and 14 of that holy inspired book says, For we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our Gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the preaching of the Gospel. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart as those who are monuments of God's amazing grace because of a divine promise and of a divine payment. So the divine power of God the Holy Spirit moves upon God's elect at their appointed time of love to reveal Jesus Christ to His chosen blood-bought people. And all of the Old Testament prophets wrote of Christ There's a historical meaning to the Old Testament uh, writings, but there's a spiritual meaning as well. Listen to these words from our dear pastor friend, Brother Don Fortner. He said, Whenever we read the prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures, we need to see both the immediate and the ultimate fulfillment of the prophet's words. Each prophecy has both an immediate, typical, and an ultimate Messianic fulfillment. Certainly, this is true with regard to our text today, which he was preaching from Isaiah chapter 12. In its immediate context, when Isaiah spoke these words, he was referring to God's deliverance of the outcast of Israel 
and a dispersed Judah from Sennacherib, the godless king of Assyria. When he invaded the land of Judea, it looked as though the nation of Israel would be utterly destroyed. And the Assyrian invasion was a terrible display of God's anger against the sins of His people. But here Isaiah assures God's elect remnant of salvation from the hands of that wicked tyrant, Sennacherib. That is the immediate, typical fulfillment of the prophecy. But there is much more in the text, in its ultimate spiritual messianic scope. This text is a prophecy of the salvation of God's elect in the day of His grace when Christ is revealed in their hearts. This text is an illustration of what happens to each of God's elect when they are translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. This is what happens to a sinner when he is born again by the power of God the Holy Spirit, delivered from the spirit of bondage and wrath, and brought by the spirit of adoption into the liberty of the sons of God. And I say, Amen to that. Now the faith of God's elect is not blind faith. I said earlier, we cannot educate anybody into the kingdom of God. But God's ministers must preach and teach gospel truths. The Holy Spirit sanctifies God's chosen blood-bought children under the preaching of His gospel, giving us faith to believe the record God has given us of His Son that is recorded in the Holy Scriptures. But the truth that we are allowed to bring before our hearers must, and I emphasize this strongly, must be made effectual by the life-giving power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the saints at Thessalonica in the first epistle. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came unto you, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Our Lord said in John 6, 44 and 45, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So we must be taught. Like I said, it's not blind faith. It's faith based upon what the Word of God clearly teaches. And it's God Himself who takes the things of Christ and reveals them to us, teaches us these things, makes them known to us. And those who are taught of God shall come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Listen to these holy inspired words. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 10 Verses 13 through 15 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? You haven't been saved if you haven't called upon the name of the Lord. But the scripture goes on to say, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach? 
except they be sent. So we must hear the truth. And God's preachers, God's Sunday school teachers, those who bring a devotional, those who testify of God's grace as they witness to their co-workers or family members or friends, these things must be made known to those we witness to, to those we preach to. The things concerning Jesus Christ and His perfect redeeming work for His chosen people. And as we preach these things, as we are allowed to witness these truths to others, it is God alone who can make that effectual. And when He does, there's a transformation that takes place that cannot be put into words. A joy that fills the hearts of God's children that cannot be described. It's unspeakable joy, the Word of God tells us. It's, a, it's an experience, a miracle performed by God the Holy Spirit that delivers us from that awful state of darkness that we were in, that awful pit, that slimy pit of corruption we wallowed in, loving every minute of it. Out of that, right into the waiting arms of Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in Him and in Him alone. And with that as an introduction, listen to these words of Isaiah chapter 12. There's only six verses. Let me read them in your hearing. Starting at verse 1 we read, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise Thee, though Thou wast angry with me, Thine anger is turned away, and Thou comfortedest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people, make mention that His name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Now if there was ever any doubt, if there was ever any doubt in your minds as we've been going through these first 11 chapters of Isaiah that the message of that prophet of old was Jesus Christ and His church. If that was, there was ever any doubt in your mind, I don't think there should be after what we've looked at, but this should remove all doubts. This is referring to that saving grace of God that we experience as God brings us out of darkness into His marvelous light. In that day refers to that day when God set us free from the prison house of unbelief. Oh, what a God. He's great. Now, there's just too much in these verses to cover in one message. So, we'll probably look at this in a series. I don't know how many messages, but for this morning, I just want to draw your attention to the last verse. Verse 6, which will be, I trust, a foundation for these other verses as we go back to verse 1 and walk back through them in a verse-by-verse study. But the sixth verse is so very important to be laid as a foundation for those Scriptures that precede this. I'll spend the time we have this morning on just that one verse. Now I've titled this message, The Inhabitants of Zion. The Inhabitants of Zion. Our our text in verse 6 says... Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, 
for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Now Zion, just, and I know you know this, but let me remind us, Zion is referring to the church of Jesus Christ, the church He purchased with His own blood, the blood of God. This is the same group of people, the same Holy Bride, Heavenly Jerusalem that the Apostle John saw coming out of heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. Look at the scripture on the front of this morning's bulletin, if you will. It's taken from Hebrews 12, verse 18, and then I skip down to 22 through 24. The Word of God tells us, Ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tents. That's the old Mount Zion. We haven't come to that. Those who are trusting in the laws or righteousness, they don't know what they're, what they're trusting. They, they don't know what they're saying. You, you know, if we offend in just one point of the law that was given to Moses on that old mount that burned with fire, that even Moses himself trembled with fear, if we offend in just one point, we're guilty of transgressing the whole law of God. I've illustrated this years ago. Maybe you heard me, but if not, you won't mind me repeating myself. Some of you might not have heard this. Suppose you're in heavy traffic and you're going on a busy street with several signal lights and every time you come to a signal light, it turns red and you have to stop. And the traffic is so heavy, you go a block and by the time you get there, it's red again. You have to stop. By the time you get to the last signal light, you're frustrated to say the least. But you have a little more speed, the traffic is thinning out a little bit, and you see the light starting to turn, and you tell yourself, I'm not stopping, and you floorboard it. And it turns red just as you get to the crosswalk. But you make it. Murphy's Law, though, there's a highway patrolman parked right there on the corner. And he pulled you over for running a red light. You can give this argument to your blue in the face. Officer, I stopped at all those other signal lights. He's not giving you a ticket for those that you stopped at. He's giving you a ticket for breaking the law and running that one red light. So if we offend in any part of God's law. We're guilty of breaking the whole law of God. But our Lord Jesus, by His wonderful grace and His substitutionary death, while He walked on this earth, He honored God's law perfectly and satisfied the holy justice of God for His people. And this is what Paul, writing to the Hebrews, is telling us. We haven't come to that old mountain, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. We're the inhabitants of Zion, that holy city, holy Jerusalem. You are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant 
and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, if we've come to Jesus, we've come to all of that which our Lord has been pleased to put in His Word to help us, to give us assurance, to make us aware of the fact that we've been set free from old Mount Zion and the law that God gave to Moses. We've been delivered. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Sinners just like we are. All of God's saints are nothing but sinners saved by His wonderful grace through the merits of Christ our Savior. We read about them all the way from Abel, actually from Adam, but from Abel whose blood speaks better things than that of, of a whose blood, the blood of Jesus Christ speaketh better things than that of Abel, all the way from Him, all the way through the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of those men that we read about, all of those women we read about, Sarah, Ruth, all of those people were sinners saved by the grace of God. We have a tendency to set them up on pedestals above us. They were men and women just like us, of like passions, who have the old nature to contend with, who were saved by the grace of God. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect, to an innumerable company of angels, the elect angels. We've come to Christ Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant than that which was given to Moses on that old mount that burned with fire. He's the only mediator between God and men. Not man, men. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. His blood is referred to as the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's the blood of God that flowed in His veins, that was shed at Calvary for the sins of His people 2,000 years ago. So we're inhabitants of Mount Zion, We've come to Jesus Christ. And He is the power of God. God has called us out of darkness, out of the land of spiritual Egypt, delivering us by the same power He delivered all of His saints of old, translating us into the eternal kingdom of Christ our Savior. This world... Brethren, is not our home. We're just passing through. We're dwelling in tabernacles of clay. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelt in tents, confessing they were sojourners and pilgrims on this earth. They looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And we have that same faith. We belong to heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the living God. We, by His grace and His mercy and His power through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are members of the body of Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. Verse 6 says, Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the Holy One of Israel. 
Israel is referring to spiritual Israel, God's chosen people, not national Israel, spiritual Israel. All Israel shall be saved, all spiritual Israel, all those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before this world was created, all of them shall be saved. And Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of us. And our text says, Cry out and shout, Thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Cry out with exuberant joy, with heartfelt praise and adoration to the One who loved us and gave Himself for us, confessing Him as our Lord and our Savior from our lips as we go into the waters of baptism, as we gather together to sing praises to Him, as we are allowed the honor of witnessing to others of this wonderful grace of God in our lives, we confess Jesus Christ to be the One who is great. He is great in the midst of thee. How can we, with human tongue, describe His greatness? It cannot be described. The greatness of our God cannot be described, but we can attempt to do so. He's great in the midst of all of His chosen people. Now, let me read this article that's in this morning's bulletin. It's right across from Pastor Don Fortner's article on the inside back cover. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. In the above verse of Holy Scripture, the article says, Zion is referring to heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Zion is the church of the firstborn, the church that our Lord Jesus purchased with His own blood. Zion is the holy city, New Jerusalem, that John the Apostle saw coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The inhabitants of Zion are God's enlightened saints whose names were written by God Himself in the Lamb's book of life before this world was created. The Holy One of Israel is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the risen, exalted Son of God, the church's blessed Redeemer. He paid the ransom price in full for all the sins of all the inhabitants of Zion, enabling God to be just and justifier of all who have been given faith to believe in Him. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, is what God's enlightened children are admonished to do. Why? For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Cry out and shout with exuberant joy because Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, is great in the midst of thee. All the inhabitants of Zion ascribe all greatness to Jesus Christ, the risen, exalted God-man. Great in agreeing to meet all the conditions of the eternal covenant of grace. Great in His awesome power in creating all things by the word of His mouth. Great in giving faith to all the Old Testament saints who looked forward to the coming of their Savior who knew that He would redeem them with His own precious blood. Great in humbling Himself to be made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem all His elect from the curse of the law. Great and being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Great, and being made sin for us, enduring the wrath of God as our substitute. Great, in delivering us from the power of darkness under the preaching of His gospel, translating us into His eternal kingdom. Great, in His sovereign power and keeping us through faith, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Great, in giving all 
giving us the blessed assurance that He will present us faultless before Him on Judgment Day. Brethren, all the inhabitants of Zion and only the inhabitants of Zion ascribe all the greatness of God to Jesus Christ, confessing that He is Lord of all. We cry out and shout with unspeakable joy to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Holy One of Israel. O Lord my God, how great Thou art. This exuberant joy in ascribing all the greatness of God to our Christ our Lord begins just as soon as we experience the miracle of the new birth. And the longer we have the honor of serving Him in this life, the more His greatness grows in our hearts and in our eyes as we feast on Him. That's what we were singing about in that song. He keeps me singing. Feasting on the riches of His grace. We feast on Christ here at Rescue Baptist Church. This is our message. We love the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, and risen again, seated on His sovereign throne of power and glory for not only being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, but for us as our representative, as our blessed surety, as the one who will not allow one for whom he died perish. Christ Jesus is great. Those who are trusting in their own polluted, sinful, self-righteous deeds for acceptance in God's sight have never seen the greatness of God the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ our Savior. And the reason they haven't, they don't have Christ dwelling in them. They're still dead in trespasses and sins. They don't have spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, or spiritual life in them to recognize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that He is the greatness that we love to talk about. Unless God is pleased to give them Deliverance from that awful state of spiritual deadness. They will go through that door marked death, dying in their sins, and spend all eternity in the lake of fire, in hell. There's no escape from that. That goes on forever and forever and forever. That's eternal torment. That's what we rightly deserve. All of God's enlightened children recognize that we were bankrupt, spiritually dead, no way to deliver ourselves. We didn't know that when we were in that state of spiritual deadness. It took the power of God to raise us from that, to give us a mind to understand that we were totally depraved, in, in able, unable to set ourselves free. And once we are delivered from that darkness, we look back and see that it was by the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, by His sovereign power, we, we were no different than those who are still dead in trespasses and sins. We had nothing to offer God. We were bankrupt. And here's the sad thing about this, but also it's, it's a, a God-honoring truth. We didn't want to be confused with the facts. We liked what we were doing. We loved that darkness we were in. 
Oh, what a great God that would come to us while we were in that unworthy, ungodly, self-righteous, hell-deserving state and reveal Himself to us as our blessed Redeemer, as our Lord and as our God. Great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of His saints. Pastor Fortner had this to say about the greatness of our Lord Jesus. He said, great in His person. (laughs) It's so true. Great in His purpose. Great in His propitiation. Great in His pardon. Great in His preservation. He's great. You cannot ascribe too much greatness to God's darling Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. People say, well, what about the Father? What about the Holy Spirit? There's only one God. And God our Father is pleased when we bow down before His Son, giving Him all the glory and ascribing all greatness to Him. You're not going to make God the Father jealous. This is what He purposed before this world was created, that Jesus Christ would be the object of all worship and praise. And the Holy Spirit doesn't even speak of Himself. He takes the things of Christ and reveals them to His people. This is His ministry. But when we worship Jesus Christ, we are worshiping The great three in one, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ our Savior. Now let me leave you with these thoughts concerning the greatness of our Lord Jesus. Our great God and Savior agreed to the conditions of the eternal covenant of grace, knowing what was before Him before He came into this world. He knew He would lay aside His glory for a little while to do His Father's will. He knew He would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knew He would be hated and despised by those self-righteous religious Jews, those that He Himself had created. He knew they would blindfold Him, spit on Him, smite Him in the face and mock Him. He knew he would be scourged by a cat of nine tails. Have you ever considered that? Thirty stripes were laid across his back. And you multiply nine times thirty, that's two hundred and seventy. And the scripture says, by his stripes we are healed. He knew he would endure that awful, excruciating pain. He knew he would die the ignominious death of the cross, being put to death by those who considered him nothing but a common criminal. He knew he would be made sin for his chosen people. The Holy One of Israel was made sin for us by God the Father that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He knew that. He knew while he was hanging there on that cross He would endure the wrath of God for His people. He knew His Father would turn His back on Him, forsaking Him. That's what made Him cry out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? But He also knew. He also knew there was no other way for His promised children, those who were promised to Him in the eternal covenant of grace by God the Father, He knew there was no other way for us to be made acceptable in God's sight. 
He endured the cross, despising the shame. But the scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy is his people. He loves his people with an everlasting love. The songwriter said, love sent my Savior to die in my stead. Why should he love me so? Meekly to Calvary's cross he was led. Why should he love me so? And I, I just have to believe every enlightened child of God has asked themselves that question. Why should he love me so? I don't have the answer, but I do know it's true. Our Lord loves his chosen people with an everlasting love, therefore, with loving kindness he draws us unto himself. This love was beautifully displayed at Calvary when God our Father sent His Son to die for our sins. The Scripture says here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sin-atoning sacrifice for our sins. What great love God has manifested for His enlightened children to ascribe all the greatness of Christ. What love is displayed at Calvary when our Lord Jesus suffered and bled and died, taking away all of our sins, past, present, and future, burying them in the grave when He was buried, leaving them there in the grave of God's forgetfulness. God remembers our sins against us no more and came out of that grave trusting in His Father to raise Him from the dead. He knew that He would not allow Him to see corruption. By the way, the Scripture says our Lord raised Himself from the dead. And He knew that He would come out of that grave and that when He did, He would come out a victorious Savior. He didn't die as a helpless victim at Calvary. He laid down His life for His people. And our victorious champion is great. He has paid the redemption price in full for all of our sins. And He's seated on His throne in heaven right now as our great representative, as our surety. Our Heavenly Father has given Him all power over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as were given Him in that eternal covenant of grace because Jesus Christ met all the conditions of the eternal covenant. He knew, our Lord knew, all of what was before Him and so much more that could be said, yet He willingly came and subjected Himself to all of that which was before Him. And He knew that all the inhabitants of Zion would be filled with praise and adoration to Him for His finished work in their behalf. And that's what our text is saying. Shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, cry out, and shout, Great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Our great God and Savior, who knew there was no other way but the way of the cross to redeem His people, comes to us when we're running from Him, when we hate Him, the same hatred in our hearts that was in the hearts of those who crucified Him, comes to us in that awful, helpless, and hopeless condition gives us His Spirit, puts His Spirit within us, and reveals these wonderful truths to us for the glory of Jesus Christ. And by His grace and His mercy, we will continue to worship Him and praise Him, crying out and shouting to all of those we have the honor of being able to speak to, 
Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, is our great God and our Savior who has delivered us and set us free and made us members of that heavenly Jerusalem, members of His own body, as those who are recipients of His amazing grace for His glory and for all eternity. This will be the wonderful relationship between our great God and His people this wonderful love in our hearts for Him, for what He has done, giving Him all the praise and all the glory for this unspeakable gift, eternal life through the finished work of Jesus Christ our Savior. Brethren, we're on our way to glory. We're marching to Zion.